All right, just a reminder on a couple of announcements that the congregational meeting is coming up on February 5th and that the a month after that we have the Chaper Seminary Pastors Conference. So we need volunteers. If you want to volunteer or if you're coming, um, we need you to go to the registration page and, and register. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness." Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments, as usual, to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, which means uh, admitting, acknowledging our sin to God in silent prayer. Instantly, we are forgiven of those sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. thankful we can be here tonight, and we're thankful that we can come before your throne of grace. And Father, we know that as we face so many different challenges in our lives, that some of these challenges, and many of them, are not nearly as intense or life-threatening or overwhelming as they could be and as they have been in many different situations in different nations throughout the history of the church. Father, we pray that we might be steadfast and that you would strengthen us and that we might be strengthened by your word, because that is the means you have chosen to use to bring about the uh, transformation of our thinking and our sanctification. And we pray that we might have a passion to know your word and to apply it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And tonight we're going to be looking at what it means to magnify Christ. This is comparable to and part of occupation with Christ. Now, as we get into this chapter and the background, we find that Paul is in prison. He is in prison in Rome, and granted, he is under house arrest. Acts tells us he was under house arrest for for two years. Before that, he spent a certain amount of time on the ship going to Rome and was shipwrecked, and we don't know exactly how long that took, maybe six months. And before that, more than two years in um, Caesarea, and there he was probably under some form of uh, house arrest as well. So it wasn't like he was later on in the maritime dungeon. 
He isn't in a Russian gulag or in a uh, Nazi death camp, but his anticipated life's plan seems to have been derailed. He seems to have hit a cul-de-sac, and he's not going anywhere, and that's what a lot of people thought, and they were discouraged and disheartened. Uh, but Paul understood that God was in control, and so Paul is not uh, bothered by this. It doesn't myth him. Uh, he's in Rome, and when he came to Rome, the church had been in existence there long before Paul arrived for a number of years. And so there were uh, men who were uh, teachers and pastors in Rome in, with different uh, congregations. And I believe that that's who Paul is talking about in this section when he's talking about some are uh, trying to uh, cause me grief or create a lot of friction or dissension, and they are preaching Christ but from the wrong motives. So there must have been some sense of rivalry that they had. And on the other hand, there were those who uh, loved the Lord and loved the gospel and were proclaiming the gospel from the correct motivations. So what we're seeing here is that God has plans for us, and often we seem like we've been derailed or we have been uh, put off on a side rail into some cul-de-sac somewhere and that it is taking us completely away from what we have always wanted to do in life. And that may be true. Maybe God is taking us in a completely different direction, and I know certainly that happened to me a number of years ago. But God's plan are all, God's plans are always for the best. So when we face this kind of difficulty or opposition and we face various tests that God takes us through for our spiritual growth and testing, we see that one of the tools that we use, the spiritual skills that I'm talking about right now on Sunday morning in Ephesians, that one of them is called occupation with Christ. And so we're going to talk about that, begin that tonight about before we uh, conclude. But that's what is uh, seen here and depicted in Paul's life. This is a great illustration of what it means to have your focus and your mental attitude totally, uh, totally engaged in the Lord and His plan for us and in His, in His Word and understanding that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purposes. So we are going to begin this, and we're going to take some time in this for a little while. And tonight we are going to start with uh, uh, Philippians 1.19. Make sure I've got the right slide here. Philippians 1.19 and in this verse, Paul starts off, this is starting a new section, by the way, that goes down from 19 down through 26. He says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, I have put the um, verse up here on the, on the uh, screen, and it starts off with the word for. 
And whenever we see certain words at the very beginning, we have to stop and, and see what they're there for. You have words like and or but. You have words like for or therefore, uh, wherefore, and all of these different words tell us what the flow of thought is that Paul has. And the word for is a word that indicates an explanation is coming. And it can be translated as for, it can be translated as since, and it can be translated as because, as it is in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which I have also on, on the screen. So he's explaining something, and he is uh, helping us understand what it is that he's talking about, that it will, when he says that this will turn out for my deliverance, well, we have to ask a little question there. What does the this refer to? This what? It's a near demonstrative, and it doesn't say this and define it. It just is going back in context. So we're going to go back and pick up on a few things that we did not look at last time. Uh, so we have in verse 15 where Paul is talking about uh, this problem with those who uh, are proclaiming the gospel, preaching Christ, but from wrong motives. And the two groups are defined in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also uh, from goodwill. Uh, so what we see here, there's two groups and I've underlined the key words in the verse. First is the word preach, and we always have to understand what the Greek word is. All of us went through a study on the gospel in these two words, the word uh, evangelizo, which is the Greek verb to proclaim good news, and evangelion, which is where we get our word evangelism from both words. Evangelion and means... Uh, something about good news and the uh, but they're always translated as just preaching not preaching the good news or proclaiming the good news and so what we have here is not that word evangelion we have a different word caruso and we'll find a third word we looked at katangelo a little bit later all of these words are used in the sense of proclaiming or or announcing something and here we have this verb, keruso, and it, it doesn't always refer to preaching the gospel, but when, a, when it's in a context of, of, of talking about what is being proclaimed, it most frequently is talking about proclaiming the gospel. It is not talking about what most people think of preaching today, which is some sort of exhortation in a nice, organized, rhetorical pattern. That is not what this refers to at all. In fact, anybody who preaches according to modern uh, homiletics is off base. Um, some indeed proclaim Christ. Now, Christ is the object of that verb telling us what the content is. They're, they're teaching or proclaiming about about Christ, and that's this particular verb. Now, there's three examples that I've got here of this verb 
in a similar context. The first has to do with Philip when he went to Samaria. And he is called Philip the Evangelist. And later in the chapter, he will be uh, miraculously transported by the Holy Spirit down to Gaza and that area where he will have an encounter with the um, Ethiopian eunuch and explain the gospel uh, to him. But here it says he went down to the city, down going from Jerusalem, which is more elevated than Samaria. So he's going down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed Christ to them. Then in Acts 9.20, the next chapter, by this point, Saul of Tarsus has been saved. And this is when he is in Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed the Christ or the Messiah, in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. That must have really been uh, something to observe and watch and listen to. But he proclaimed the Messiah. So teaching about Jesus and who he was uh, is uh, central to this understanding of the proclamation. And then 1 Corinthians one twenty three, Paul wrote, but we proclaim Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness so this introduces us to uh, what what is going on in this verse they are he says they are proclaiming Christ so they're talking about who Jesus is and what he did the gospel most obviously um, but they're doing it from the pro, from the source of their sin nature so you have three words that I've put up here because the third uh, or the um, uh, third word isn't going to show up here, but it shows up in the next verse. And so I'm just putting it here so we see these these three words: envy and strife. The first word is the word phthanos, and this means in envy and jealousy. And this word always is a sin. Now, there's another word we're going to see in a minute, zealous, and that is sometimes translated zealous. You can hear that it is a uh, cognate word to the English word, zealous, and it sometimes has the idea of being zealous for something good, but then um, in just a slight majority of cases, it refers to that which is not good, that which is a sin. So you really have to look at the context to determine whether it is a positive or negative. So we have this first word, thanos. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy. So if you were to do a word search on the English word envy in an electronic text, or you were to look the English word envy up in a concordance, you would see that there are two different words that are translated envy, and we'll look at those in just a second. But envy and strife, these two words, thanos and then eris, which refers to discord, contentiousness, or rivalry. And I think in a lot of ways, rivalry fits the context of Philippians 2, because these other uh, pastors who are proclaiming the gospel seem to have uh, entered into some sort of competitive mentality toward Paul. They're not getting enough attention because 
the Apostle Paul is on the scene, so all of these guys are no longer uh, the ones that everybody's talking about. And so there's some jealousy there, uh, and so this is what underlies their, uh, their pr- uh, proclamation of Christ. But what we're going to learn is that what the content of what they're saying is not wrong. If it were, if they were giving a false gospel, if they were adding works to the gospel, if they were uh, preaching something that was licentious, Paul would straighten them out. But he is fine with the fact with what they are saying. But their motivation is just to aggravate him and create dissension and some friction. So we see these words together frequently in the scriptures. In James, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, this is a very, very good, very strong passage where James writes in a rhetorical question, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So wisdom it grows out of humility. It doesn't grow out of arrogance. Arrogance is contradictory to wisdom. So they are to show by their outward conduct their humility by what they how they conduct themselves. And then there's a contrast between the one who is wise and understanding and has humility and the one that doesn't. And this is what we have as a character, characteristic of these uh, teachers that are trying to cause dissension and division in Philippi, I mean in, uh, in Rome. But if you have bitter envy, which is the word here, it is zelos instead of thanos, bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts. So you have erethea, which is arrogant, self-centered, driven strife. So if you have this bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. So this is an interesting passage for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that the, the place of the envy and self-seeking is in their thinking. It originates with their sin nature. But it is in their hearts. Hearts that in our culture often refers to something emotional, but in the scripture it usually refers to your intellect. It has the idea of that which is at the center of our thinking. So, um, they are, mo- this is talking about mental attitude sins that would affect, uh, would, would affect the uh, their motivation. And and James says, do not boast and lie against the truth. Now, I want you to notice that phrase. In light of what we've studied in Ephesians, where we have put off the lie, and we are to talk, communicate with our neighbor on the basis of truth. We're not talking in that passage in Ephesians about what we see in Colossians 3 where it says don't lie, well, it's a different concept there. But I want you to focus on the truth that when they are, um, the, these folks that J, in the congregation James is addressing, they're boasting about things, they're filled with arrogance, and they are lying against the truth, which is the truth of the Word of God. And so then Paul character, I mean, James characterizes their 
their their wisdom as not being divine viewpoint, not being from the Lord. The wisdom does not descend from above, but contrast. And there's three words here that are that are used that it's very interesting. First, it says it's earthly. This is just a synonym for the concept of worldly. Um, worldly is just a category uh, word that describes human viewpoint thinking or the thinking of Satan. And this is a passage that demonstrates that because it's earthly. It is of the earth. Similar imagery to the term earth dweller in Revelation during the time of the tribulation. Those who are unbelievers and antagonistic to God are called earth dwellers all through uh, the section from uh, Revelation 4 on. So that this wisdom is earthly. It it's, comes from those who dwell on the earth apart from any relationship to God. The next word uh, is mistranslated in almost every text, and it is the word asukikos, uh, which means of the soul, as opposed to pneumatikos, which is the word related to being from the spirit. So it's soulish. The soulish man is the natural man of second of First uh, Corinthians chapter two verse uh, fourteen. That the soulish man is unable to understand the things of the spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned pneumaticos. When a person is regenerated, the human spirit which Adam originally had is. Uh, is given to them to make them alive spiritually. Adam was created with three components, body, soul, and human spirit. The human spirit isn't some other entity for thinking or anything like that. The human spirit was that which gave the soul the ability to have a relationship with God, to understand the things of God, to recognize that we are in the image of God in terms of our self-consciousness, in terms of our mentality, the human spirit gives us the ability to think the things of God and to understand the things of God. It uh, enables our conscience to, conscience to have the standards that are given in the Scripture, the moral and the ethical standards, and to uh, enable us now to make choices in relationship to God. Uh, the unbeliever has none of that, so he's considered soulish and demonic. His thinking is defined in three terms that are used in this way throughout Scripture, but you find all three of them together here. So this is a very important passage that this wisdom isn't Godly, It doesn't derive from God. It derives from human beings. It derives from those who are unsaved, spiritually dead, and it derives from the demonic. What I have taught for since back in the 80s is that human viewpoint is just demonic viewpoint. It's the devil's viewpoint. It's the viewpoint of the world. It's based on all of the same kind of thinking as the devil. So we often look at certain types of people and we, and we say, well, they're just devilish. They are, what they are doing is like the devil. It derives from the same kind of thinking. And so 
here we have this this uh, bitter envy and the self-absorption, the self-seeking that is all characterized by by Satan's thinking. And we have that phrase, they lie against the truth, not just somebody's concept of what is true or false, but the scripture. Then as we, as we look at this, we also see that these words that are, that I've been talking about, um, Eritrea and, uh, envy, Thanos, and also envy, which is, uh, related to Zalos, these show up in Galatians 5, 20 and 21. This is the passage. It starts off in Galatians 5, 16. Do not walk, uh, or it says walk by the Spirit, and you will not bring to completion the lust of the flesh. And 17 and 18 and 19 talks about the conflict between the sin nature, the flesh, and the Spirit. Uh, excuse me, in verse 19, it begins to list the works of the flesh. So if you are observing beha- certain kinds of behavior, then that's what this is doing. It's listing the behavior, the mental attitude sins, the overt sins, sins of the tongue. And if you observe that behavior, that is, means that those people are living on right at that point. They're controlled by their sin nature. And so in this list of sinful behaviors, you have uh, these three words, selfish, uh, first of all, jealousies, which is the translation of zealous, which we just saw in the James 3 passage. Then there's selfish ambitions, erytheia, and that leads to dissensions and heresies in terms of sort of a logical flow of these sins. And then envy, which is thanos, which is never used in a positive way. It always refers to a sinful envy. So this is the sin nature. So when we take that back and we look at our passage in um, uh, uh, Philippians 1.16, uh, 115 and 16, they preach Christ from envy and strife, and then the motive behind that is given in verse uh, 16, the former uh, preach Christ from selfish ambition. So their sin nature's in control. And you can have pastors who are teaching Bible studies out of all kinds of sinful motives. They can have, be preaching from a motive of ambition. They can be preaching from a motive of, of their, the, um, uh, they want recognition, they want approval, approbation, lust, uh, they want money in some cases, uh, they, but they do give the gospel. What they say is true, but their motivation is false. And so, of course, it doesn't count for eternity. It's just, but God blesses his word. And a pastor can be teaching the word and what he says is true, but the blessing comes because he's teaching God's word and not because he is walking by the Spirit. God is always going to bless the teaching of his word. It's not dependent on the spiritual status of the uh, of the pastor. Now, another pa- passage where we see these words is in 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. And... And Paul says there, if anyone teaches otherwise, he's just described 
the, the sound content of his teaching. He says, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words. Now, we're going to get in this section. We're looking at the spiritual skills right now in Ephesians 4. But as we go from Ephesians 4, finish up that chapter and into the next chapter, there are several things that are talked about in terms of corrupt words or uh, other kinds of, of, of language that are almost always taken by people who don't understand the context is talk about, well, uh, somewhat salty language or uh, uh, profanity or something like that. And that's not what it's talking about at all. Here and in our passage in Ephesians 4, the contrast is talking within the framework of the truth of Scripture and talking in uh, consistent with the lie. That's what makes it corrupt. Uh, some of the most corrupt speech is, takes place in uh, university classrooms because what is taught there is contrary to the truth of God's Word. And they may not use any foul language at all, but they are teaching the lie. So that's what makes it corrupt. That's what makes it unwholesome. So here we have that use of um, those who teach contrary to Paul are not consenting to wholesome words. They don't contribute to spiritual health, and they're uh, according to the lie. And then he says, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. So that doesn't mean that we're always talking about the Bible, but that that which we talk about is to be consistent with the Word of God and from within the framework of a biblical view of life. And so he says, if anyone teaches otherwise, and then he has a character analysis in verse 4, he says he is proud, knowing nothing. See, this is like Romans 1 that says that they're professing to be wise, they become fools. The most foolish people in the planet are people who are teaching in university classrooms who are unbelievers and they're teaching evolution, they're teaching critical race theory, uh, they're teaching all kinds of uh, Marxism and other things that are false, and they may be very nice people with uh, enjoyable personalities, but they're fools. And they really don't know anything, no matter how many letters they have after their name. So Paul says someone who teaches contrary to what Scripture says is arrogant and knows nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come, what? Envy, thanos, and strife, eris, discord, and division reviling and evil suspicions and useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds. They're corrupt because they're spiritually dead and they don't know the truth. Uh, corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. Notice how many times you get this contrast between those who are not saved and those who are saved who are supposed to be dedicated to the truth. And so these uh, men are um, have envy and strife, same as the uh, preachers in uh, Philippians 1. And they are, uh, but these in 1 Timothy 6 are destitute of the truth. That's not true of those in Philippians 1. 
But here these are using godliness or talking about spirituality as a means of great gain. That that indicts every pastor who teaches the health and wealth gospel, every single one of them. They are motivated by great gain. You have a number of them who have have been able to purchase incredibly millions and millions of dollars worth of of uh, of jet planes to fly all over everywhere they go and and they drive car there was one uh, female evangelist and they were her 501c3 was being investigated by uh, Chuck Grassley who's a senator from uh, from Iowa I believe and because she had a 24-karat gold commode in her bathroom. I mean, it's just amazing what these pe- people do. And, and, and they are a, they are, they're, they, they blaspheme God by their very breath. So Paul goes on to say, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and then the other category is goodwill. This is the word eudokia. The EU prefix always indicates something good. And dokia indicates something that appears or seems to be a cer- certain way. So eudokia comes to mean uh, something that uh, is good pleasure, goodwill, approval. It refers to a motive that is acceptable to God, expresses a desire to do God's will, including motivation and action. And that's uh, it's used in a number of passages. This is the word that's used in the uh, angelic proclamation to the shepherds after our Lord was born. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And Philippians 2.13, for it is good it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So this is going to come up again in Philippians 2. Paul is in the introduction here uh, in Philippians uh, chapter 1, and these same ideas are going to uh, pop up as we go through the epistle. Ephesians 1.9, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. And then Second Thess 1.11, Therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and his work with power. So this idea of goodwill indicates that they desire to do that which pleases God and that which is acceptable to God, and so their emphasis is is on the gospel. And that's why in verse 17, Paul is going to say, but the latter out of love, because they know that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So that's the third result that is given from the uh, introductory passage talking about the furtherance or progress of the gospel in, in verse 12. So verse 16, they, the former preach Christ from uh, Erethea, selfish ambition, 
not sincerely supposing to add affliction. Now, this is the word on the left. It's thlipsis, which is sometimes translated tribulation. It's a word that is one of several that are used of the great tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, that will come after the rapture. But here it just refers to uh, having everyday troubles, everyday difficulties, problems in life of all categories, adversity. So um, it also has the idea of just creating aggravation or friction. And that's what these guys are motivated to do. They just want to stir things up because Paul's in prison. He can't go out and do anything, so they're going to be the ones who are going out and doing evangelism and proclaiming Christ, and they think that that's going to aggravate Paul because he's not getting uh, all the recognition. But see, Paul is occupied with Christ, so it doesn't matter to him. His focus is just that as long as the gospel is being taught, uh, then he is thankful. Now, I haven't reached that stage yet. I hear of pastors who are have bad theology and are misleading and deceiving the sheep in many other areas, and yet they are... Uh, they do give the gospel correctly and some other things. I know uh, also of other pastors that I know who really have not done well in learning to be uh, trained or learning theology or going to seminary, which is what I heard from the pulpit all my life, was that if you're going to be a pastor, you need to go to seminary, you need to learn how to read, and you need to develop a love for, for the languages, and if not, you're really not going to be prepared to be in the pulpit. And uh, yet there are men who just go out there and uh, as echo chambers, and that, I, you know, that bothers me. But they're teaching the truth, so I've got to get to the point where I'm okay with that because they teach. So I'm, I'm, I'm work, got a long way to go. Okay, Philippians 2.3, we have these passages that talk about, Selfish ambition. Let, Philippians 2, 3, let nothing be done from Erethea. That's, that's just in the next chapter, and he uses that same language because he is uh, correcting the motivation of these, uh, these uh, envious teachers. So let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. That's the contrast. You're either humble or you've got self-centered ambition. Galatians 5.20, we've already looked at. This looks at, at the works of the flesh, as well as James 3.16, where it talks about envy and self-seeking, again, in that context. Uh, later on, in Philippians 2.20-22, 20 Paul is telling the Philippians that, that he just doesn't have uh, that many he can rely on who have the right mentality, who are truly humble and not self-seeking. He says, for I have no, no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all, now he doesn't mean every single one. Here's one of those uses of all where it means uh, just a lot of people. Uh, um, all seek their own. They're all self-centered. Not the things which are of Christ Jesus, but you know his. And he's talking about Timothy, his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served me with me in the gospel. 
So Philippians 1.17 says that the latter, those who are seeking uh, God's goodwill, uh, they are speaking out of love or from the motivation of love. This is the word agape, which is used of God's love for man, that is his unconditional love for the human race. He loves unbelievers and believers alike with this kind of love. And that is John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way, and it's agape. And you have it in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love, agape, toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But in Philippi, I mean, in uh, Revelation 3.19, uh, in the letter that uh, Christ sends to the church of Laodicea, he says that he loves them, and it's phileo, and that is a word that indicates a more intimate love and is only used of God's love for believers. So that tells you that this mixed-up church, the last church, that uh, the seventh church in Revelation 3, they're, they're believers, they're just not growing, they're just disobedient, and they're lukewarm. So here Paul says the latter out of love, and it's a causal participle there, because they know something. They know that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel, so they love the Lord, they love Paul, they understand who who Paul is. And this is a reminder of what he said in the earlier part of the introduction in verse 7 that um, it's right for me to think this about you all because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. So he has been appointed, and the latter recognized that Paul has been appointed in his apostolic commission for the defense of the gospel. And that is the word apologia. He is to not only present the truth of the gospel, but present evidence for why the gospel is true, why uh, Jesus is the Messiah. We go back to that verse I referenced in Acts 9 at the beginning when he is in Damascus after his blindness has been healed, and he is going into the synagogues, plural, and he is teaching and demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah. And so there were a number that were saved at that time. So in doing that, you have to defend. That means build a case for what you are saying. You just don't pull out your gospel gun and shoot him with Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, think that you've done your job. Sometimes it may take you 30 years of conversation and friendship with somebody before they are finally brought to a position where they will actually pay attention to you. I've had that happen before. So in Philippians 1.18, he begins with the question, what then? Well, so what in light of what's going on with this competition, this rivalry that's being uh, initiated by these other people? pastors, what should we do? Well, what, that's, that's what he means. He's, he's asking that question. Well, what should we do? What is, what's our situation? How should we uh, respond in this situation? 
And so he answers it. He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth. Notice that word again, in truth. Pretense is contrasted with truth. Pretense has to do with false motives, has to do with uh, giving excuses or pretext, and it refers to a, uh, a pious hypocrisy. The Pharisees are said to have uh, prophesis as a cover for their sin and sinfulness. Passages like Matthew twenty three fourteen and John fifteen twenty two. But you have interesting uh, uh, passage here, Mark twelve forty, uh, who talking, uh, accusing and indicting the Pharisees. Jesus said, "Who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense." They make long prayers. They have no real prayer life because they're spiritually dead, but they have a hypocritical prayer, and God doesn't listen to them. And so uh, they will receive greater condemnation. But here's a really interesting use of the word in Acts 27.30, and this is when uh, Paul is on that ship on the way to Rome, and they're caught in the storm, And it says the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship. Now, he had told them what? Everybody stay on the ship. Nobody get off, and everybody's going to live. But these sailors don't believe him, so they're trying to sneak to a place where they can get off the ship. So uh, the text says, as they were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea, under pretense. So they're saying, oh, we're going to put the anchor down, and what they're really doing is they're trying to get this skiff off the ship so that they can get on it. Uh, so that's the idea of that word, uh, under pretense of the putting anchors out from the prow. So uh, this is the idea. He is saying that uh, that in every way, whether in pretense, in hypocrisy, because they're preaching from wrong motives, uh, or in truth, that which is consistent with uh, the scripture. So then we come to uh, another use of these words in um, uh, Ephesians 4, 21 to 25, which is what we have been studying recently, where uh, Paul writes, uh, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. So when we're talking about in truth or the truth, we're talking about uh, that which is derived from the Word of God, and that which is consistent with the teaching of Scripture. Now, you have to be careful with that phrase. There's a lot of people who say, well, it's consistent with Scripture. I say, well, where would you support that? How do you get get along with that? Well, it doesn't say it's wrong. Well, it doesn't say it's right either, and it is not consistent. I've had that those kinds of discussions many times with seminary professors. Um and verse uh, Ephesians 4.24, and that you have already put on the new man, which was created to God, how? In true righteousness and holiness. So that's talking about the new man of the body of Christ. And then Ephesians 4.25, therefore having already put away the lie, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. So this is the issue, is are we going to be operating within the realm of the absolute truth of the revelation of Scripture, 
or are we going to pick and choose with the earthly, the soulish, and the demonic concepts of wisdom and uh, and life? So Paul says, what then? What are we going to do? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. This is not Caruso, which we looked at earlier. It is a synonym for proclamation, cot angelo. So we know the word angelos, which is an angel who is a messenger who comes to announce things. Well, angelo is the root root verb that means to uh, announce something or declare something. And when you put the preposition kata in front of it, it means uh, to announce or to proclaim or to declare. And it's just a synonym uh, for keruso. What's, what is he saying? He is saying that in every way, Christ is preached. It doesn't matter. What matters to him is that the gospel is proclaimed. This is a manifestation of occupation with Christ. And he's going to go on to say, uh, in the, in the, um, in the next verse, when we get down to, uh, verse 20, that so now also Christ will be magnified. That's his whole thing. That's his value system. If Christ is magnified, then it's okay. But if Christ is not magnified, then it's not. That's occupation with Christ. Our focus is on, on the magnification of Christ. So the term that has been used to describe this as a category is occupation with Christ. Now, what in the world does it mean to be occupied with Christ. If we look up the English word, the word occupy has two significant uh, denotations. First is it means to take up residence or to live in a house or in a, pla- in a, in a place, in a house, in an office, in an apartment. And it also has the sense of having your attention totally engaged by someone or something. Now, I think there are elements of both of those are true. When we are occupied with Christ, it is the result of abiding in Christ. That's the first meaning, talking about a place of residence. When we look at John chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 5, I'm not going to go through the whole chapter, Jesus is talking. Now, many people think Jesus is talking about salvation, and he's not. That's the view of Calvinists. That's the view of Lordship Salvation. Jesus says, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch, how are these branches described? They're in me. He, he, he doesn't use in me like Paul does. Paul uses in Christ to refer to our legal position in Christ. John uses in me as, the, as a relational term. You know, Jesus says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. That's relational. That's not positional. That's not talking about a legal position. And that's in the same context, by the way, in chapter 14. So here, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Actually, that's a bad translation. The word iro there means also to lift up. And there's some wonderful work that's been done by a graduate of... uh, of Dallas Seminary, who did his master's work at Texas A&M, 
in um, in in uh, viticulture and growing grapes and developing wine. And he went back and he read through uh, ancient manuscripts describing the agricultural process in that time period around the first century. And what would happen is you have the vines that are beginning to grow, and uh, in the, that first year they might not produce any fruit. So what you would do is you would tie the branches up to a stake so that they got more uh, wind, more air, more sunlight, and they would then the second year uh, produce more fruit. So he would. it should be translated, uh, and, and in the language they use the same verb. So in every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. You will have some people, Arminians, will say, oh, he takes away. You lost your salvation. It's not a salvation passage. Every branch that bears fruit, that comes along in the second year, he prunes. He's going to cut away the branches. If you grow tomatoes, you've got the same problem with suckers on the uh, coming out of the main stalk on your on your tomato plants, and that just takes a lot of energy and nutrients away from fruit bearing. So you uh, prune the plant so that it bears even more fruit. So you have no fruit, you have fruit, you have more fruit, and then later it will be much more fruit. So you have this these different categories of fruit bearing. And then Jesus looked at them and said, you are already clean. He said the same thing in John 13, describing uh, every one of the 11 of the 12 disciples except the 12th, which was Judas. And he said, you are all already clean, which refers to pers- uh, per- um, positional cleansing. And he said, but not all of you. And then John inserts an explanatory statement that one of them had a devil. So that's referring to Judas. So we have a clear statement that he's talking about. They're already saved. He's not telling them how to be saved. Abiding isn't how to be saved. Abiding is what you are supposed to do as a believer. Sometimes we abide in Christ. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we walk by the Spirit. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we walk in the light. Sometimes we don't. Those terms are all roughly synonymous. So he says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. What word is that? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. The word that he uh, spoke to them was the gospel. And then in verse uh, verse 4, he says, abide in me. Whenever it's a command, you have a binary option. You obey or disobey. Now, he's not speaking to unbelievers and saying abide in me as as something related to salvation. He's talking to believers and saying abide in me and I in you. And then he says, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So where are we to dwell we're to dwell in Christ. We're to live in Christ. So that's that's sort of the beginnings of developing our ability uh, to ha- to be occupied with Christ. The other part is the part that is the primary thing, and that is to be so focused and engaged by something 
that it overrides and 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 governs all of your decision making. That's what Paul is doing here. It doesn't matter. And and even though he's in prison, and in some sense he doesn't know what is going to happen, but he has a confidence that he's going to go on and live and he's not going to uh, be executed. But he recognizes that that he may die. But he says it really doesn't matter. Uh, this is what he's saying in verse 20. He says, uh, whether I live or die, Christ will be magnified. That's occupation with Christ. So this forms the backdrop here. So he begins in verse 19. He says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Christ. The word translated no is the verb oida, which indicates a couple of different things, but here it would indicate a confident knowledge. And that is further, um, further reinforced by the <coughs> word translated as earnest expectation, and then elpis, the word for hope. And when I read this in verse 20, or excuse me, in verse 19, where it's talking about uh, the supply of the Spirit of God, it reminds me of Ephesians 3.16, he would, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through the Spirit in the inner man. Now, I saw a meme yesterday that I thought was quite amusing. And so this is a prayer. Lord, please give me patience, because if you give me strength, you'll also need to give me Bail money. We are strengthened by the Spirit, not in that way. So Paul is saying that we are going to be strength. He's going to, um, or excuse me, that this will turn out for his deliverance. That's the word soteria. Sozo, the root word, is the word for salvation. Okay, but salvation doesn't always refer to justification salvation. Often it refers to simply deliverance from a difficult situation. So Paul is saying, I have confident knowledge that this will turn out for my uh, deliverance from this difficult situation through two things, your prayer, and second, the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And often we don't recognize the power of prayer. In James 4, 2D, that's the fourth clause in the verse, James introduces a new topic which he carries through verse 3, and he says, yet you do not have because you don't ask. Ah, but you sometimes you ask amiss, and you don't receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasure. So you can ask for the wrong reasons, and God's not going to answer that prayer. You know, God says either yes, no, or maybe, but he always, or later, and he always answers prayer. Here, you don't have because you don't ask. God's waiting to give, but you don't ask, so you don't get it. Now, that doesn't mean that that applies to everything, because sometimes the Lord just says, no, you don't have the capacity for it. No, that's not my plan for your life. Uh, so God can say no for a lot of other reasons. So in 120... He says, according to my earnest expectation. And this is a phrase that is 
that emphasizes a confident expectation, a certainty of what may come. And we find it in a number of different places, but one place that we find it is in Romans 8.19. And in Romans 8.19, Paul wrote, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. And so here it has that idea of eager or confident expectation. Uh, And the creation is personified here as expecting eagerly and confidently that uh, Christ will return with believers to uh, rule over the planet and turn back the curse. goes on to say, in verse 20, for the creation was subject, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. See, God subjected it in the hope and confident expectation that he would eventually redeem the, correct, uh, the, the, the creation. Now, that's an interesting use of the word redeem because it doesn't refer specifically to the cross, but will be uh, applied at the end of time. Verse 21 says, Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans, and labors with birth pangs together till not till, till until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So that's talking about the redemption of the body at uh, either at the rapture or when we are resurrected. So this is a very important passage, and. Uh, Since we're running out of time, I'm just going to stop here. We have the phrase that's used in the end of verse 20, that Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And that concept of magnification or enlarging somebody's reputation is something that we find in the Psalms. And if you notice in the parallelism between the first line and the second line, that magnify relates to exalting and relates to praising God. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And then in Psalm 69:30, I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. So these two Psalms, Psalm 34:3 and Psalm 69:30, both talk about magnifying the Lord, and that's part of what we'll look at next time as we get into understanding what it means to be occupied with Christ. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to uh, be challenged that we are to be occupied with the Lord Jesus Christ, that our Savior is to be the the end game for all of our thinking and all of the things that we do in life that we are here to serve him and to glorify him and to magnify him. 
And when that rules in our thinking, then we have the kind of mindset that the Apostle Paul had even when he is restricted and sitting in a Roman prison. Father, we pray that we might be challenged in this area and that we may think about how we are to arrange our thinking and arrange our lives so that we can magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.